Welcome to the August 2015 podcast for the Journal of Parenteral and Enteral Nutrition. This month we'll be talking about a paper entitled Volume-Based Feeding in the Critically Ill Patient by the first author, Dr. Steve McClave. Dr. McClave is the Professor of Medicine and Director of Clinical Nutrition at the University of Louisville School of Medicine. He's also a past president of the American Society for Parental and Enteral Nutrition. Welcome, Dr. McClave. Thanks. Hi, Kelly. Glad to be on the podcast. Thank you. So tell us a bit about this paper. You've looked at volume-based feeding as an alternate strategy for trying to increase the volume of intakes that we're able to give patients. Yes. The strategy of this project is the idea that when a patient is critically ill and they're at high nutritional risk, institutions need to have strategies in place to deliver enteral nutrition to get the goal in a timely fashion. And this is one of many different strategies you can use to do that. So what was the study design? How did you go about coming up with the protocol and then testing it systematically? This was a single-center, prospective, randomized trial involving critically ill adults in a medical ICU anticipated beyond mechanical ventilation for greater than 72 hours. Once they were identified and agreed to be in the study, they were randomized in a three-to-one fashion to volume-based feeding versus rate-based. Rate-based feeding, you calculate caloric protein needs, divide by 24 hours and determine a fixed rate to deliver that volume. That's rate-based. If a patient goes down to x-ray and is interrupted for six hours, they come back up, they go right back on that rate-based feeding, and you just lose those six hours. Patients randomized to volume-based feeding, they do the same calculations to determine caloric requirements, and then the feeds are started. But this time, if they're interrupted by six hours down in radiology or a bedside procedure, When they come back up, the protocol empowers the nurse to increase the rate, make up for lost time, such that a total volume is delivered within 24 hours. So it's a strategy to increase delivery in a patient population that's frequently interrupted by diagnostic tests and bedside procedures. Now tell us what your results were then. How long did you feed these patients for? What was your intervention? Um, The study was from time of admission to the ICU to advancement to oral diet, discharge from the ICU, or death. And our main results showed that just being randomized to a volume-based feeding group, we were able to deliver 92.9% of caloric requirements with a mean caloric deficit of only 776 kilocalories. Those randomized to rate-based feeding were significantly less at 80.9% of cold calories and a caloric deficit that was much higher at 1,933 calories. So just being randomized to volume-based feeding increased the percent of gold calories delivered by about 12%. What was interesting, though, was about half the time volume-based feeding patients we're not interrupted. You don't need a volume-based strategy if there are no interruptions in the feeds. But for the half the time that the feedings were interrupted, if the nurse was compliant with the protocol 
then the patient's got 95% of goal calories delivered. If the nurse was not compliant, they got 69%. So that's a difference of 26% if the nurse was compliant and increased the rate versus non-compliant and just put them right back on a rate-based feeding. The message is that the volume-based feeding really benefits the patients where there are frequent interruptions to feeding, the nurse buys into the fact that she's part of the team to deliver enteral feeding, and then you, you can improve the delivery of enteral calories. This is very interesting for a couple of reasons. First, am I correct in saying that if we compare your rate-based feeding uh, at about achieving 80% of energy delivery, that that's higher than in the literature in comparable populations. So your baseline is probably better than what's happening in the majority of hospitals. We've been working at this for several years, and and 80% is good. That's probably about as good as you can expect. Interestingly, it's not the same in every unit in our hospital. Burn unit, they get close to 100%. Surgical ICU, they get close to 20%, but this is a medical ICU, and they get about 80%. The difference between the burn unit and this unit, for example, is a different strategy. The dietitians in the burn unit just automatically over-order calories at about 140% of what they want the patient to get, and then with the interruptions and all, they end up at right at 100%. In the surgical ICU, there's so many bedside procedures going back and forth to the OR for uh, orthopedic procedures or uh, burn wound debridements. They're constantly battling with post-op ileus, and they get 20% of calories delivered. Volume-based feeding is just one strategy that works very well in a medical ICU that they can increase your overall delivery. Another strategy that I know certain units will use is find, determine their volume and divide it by 20 hours rather than 24 to account for those ons and options. And That's good. Times, kind of like what you're saying in your burn ICU, yep. just overestimating. A couple other strategies would be the PEP-UP or top-down strategy in which you, as you initiate enteral feeding, you initiate five or six different steps. Volume-based feeding, have the tube in the small bowel, start with prokinetics, plaster the calorie deficit on the chart, use a small peptide formula that may be tolerated by the greatest number of patients, do all these at once as you initiate feeds and then as tolerances establish you back off. Another strategy is bundling statements or bundling recommendations. You have five or six steps that you think would be most helpful in delivering enteral feeding. Put them on a card and hand them out to the residents and the docs and everybody and that bundle of of recommendations can be used to increase delivery. The other thing that you said was touching on compliance of the nurse, and I think that this really does demonstrate how important that interdisciplinary or multidisciplinary team approach is where we need each of the key disciplines caring for our patients concerned about nutrition and its administration. So what was the compliance like among the multiple nurses that she worked with on this protocol? That's a fabulous question. Keep in mind, every one of these patients is in an ICU that already has an assigned dietitian. So the dietitian is leaving notes every day, recommending, watching this protocol, making sure that people are adhering to it. And despite that presence of the dietitian, only one-third of the nurses were compliant. 
those that were compliant were totally into it. They realized they were part of the team. They appreciated what we were trying to do, and they made their part or contributed their part to delivering animal feeding. The two-thirds that were non-compliant had funny reactions. Some didn't want to be bothered by this. They didn't want to do mathematical calculations and take time to figure out what they'd have to do to make up for lost time. Some of them were nervous. One of them actually said to us that she thought her license was on the line if she increased the feeding rate and something happened. And then the others were just busy, and and this was not something they felt comfortable doing. So that was an interesting aspect that we didn't anticipate. Yeah, that really underscores the ownership that we need with certain nurses to show them how critical their role is in helping administer nutrition interventions uh, and really empowering them. We thought Uh, at the end of the study that it's like if you ask who has their hand on the spigot, that delivers the feeding, it's the nurse. And the dietitians and the pharmacists and the docs can have protocols in place, they can try to enforce the protocol, but at the end of the day, the nurse has got her hand on the spigot and we have to have buy-in from them and ownership on their part, you're right. So do you have any thoughts on how to do that in a comprehensive way? I've been impressed in the past at our own institution and other settings that if you present scientific facts to nurses, they respond to the information. And to be honest, they respond better than physicians. Physicians always (laughs) carry baggage and think they got the answer and don't really want to be told new answers. Nurses are very receptive to information. You show them how this benefits, show them the importance of why more calories is better than less calories, and same for protein, and they respond. And it's pretty easy to get buy-in. But it does necessitate an education program. Very good. My final question is really regarding safety. Did you have any kind of limits on upper level of rate? If your patient had been gone for eight hours, for example, mm-hmm. when they returned, the rate would have been far more elevated than what we would use as a continuous infusion. And was there any kind of upper level where the nurses didn't have to worry that they would be overdoing it? That's a great question, and the answer is yes. If you look on the table of figure one in the paper, for gastric feeding, we had a maximum rate of 280 cc's per hour. In the small bowel, that was 150. Now, we did this study several years ago. In fact, it predated the PEPUPS trial because I did it with Darren Highland, and then he took it for the PEPUP study. But he was nervous about those rates and actually decreased those rates in the formal PEPUP protocol. Beth Taylor in the Feed Me protocol at Barnes-Jewish in in St. Louis, she used the same strategy, but she used uh, smaller numbers than we used. When we presented this paper to our own GI division, they said that I was being a scaredy cat, that they would have pushed the numbers higher, that these were very conservative and didn't worry them at all. Well, and in the paper, we see means. How many instances were there where rates that would have been recalculated to meet the volume requirements actually met that upper level. Was that a frequent issue? I don't have that data. I don't think we got really close on a lot. 
but the point was if you calculated over 280 milliliters per hour, you could not give them more than that. You could only give up to that point. Right. I yeah. don't think we captured the data of exactly how often they were right at that mark. Okay. Yeah, I just wondered about the variability. Like other protocols, if someone wanted to adopt this for their institution, they sit down and say, okay, we're not comfortable with 280 and 150 for the small bowel. What are we comfortable with? and have lower numbers or higher numbers. But the idea to make up for lost time, that's the neat part, I think. It's very easy to do and can be adopted very easily, I think, by teams. Absolutely. Another excellent protocol for helping ensure that these patients are getting the optimal amount of nutrition. Dr. Mm -hmm. McClave, thank you so very much for joining us on this JPEN podcast. Thanks, Kelly.